can you and I be sure that we're saved? How can you and I have such confidence that God has actually forgiven our sins? Doesn't it seem presumptuous, perhaps even prideful, to think we could possess an enduring assurance of salvation? What about those who fall away, come to faith early in life and then abandon their faith altogether and leave the church and never to return again? Is it possible to be a recipient of atonement and then forsake that which Christ has freely given to you? Friend, these questions and many more, no doubt, you hear often in your life. Maybe even in your own private conversations with yourself, with your friends, thinking through assurance. Can we be assured that we are saved? That Christ has truly paid it all? This morning we're going to think about Psalm 130. The 130th Psalm, we're going to reflect upon this theme of assurance. How one gains it, how one secures it, how we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we're saved. Now, like the other psalms that we've considered over the month of July, this psalm too is a lament or a penitential psalm. This particular category of lament is that of crying out to the Lord in tremendous pain and anguish. And over the last several weeks, we've considered lamenting over our circumstances, lamenting over our sufferings in this fallen world. But this morning, Psalm 130 is not a lament over providential matters, but a lament over one's own sin. As the psalmist cries out to the Lord in the depth of their own rebellion, they've been found out in their sin. And they don't know what to do or who to turn to. Here the psalmist cries out for the Lord's mercy and deliverance. And furthermore, invites the congregation to patiently wait upon the Lord for full forgiveness. And as we'll see subsequently, assurance that follows. I invite you to turn to Psalm 130. It's found on page 518 in the Black Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word... Um, let, let, let me just encourage you to take that as our gift to you. Read that. Um, get to know God better through it. Ask those around you uh, more about that book. Psalm 130. A song of a sense. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Christians are a forgiven people. Christians are a forgiven people based solely upon God's mercy through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can be assured of our relationship with the Lord. An enduring relationship. A relationship that has its foundation not in what we do, even in our confession, even in our faith, but what God is doing through us by the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of this psalm, and really the purpose of our time this morning, is to learn the pathway to assurance. Psalm 130 outlines a road or pathway to assurance. In the midst of our despair over sin, God offers us a pathway to forgiveness and a restored relationship with Him. The trajectory of this psalm goes from the darkest pit to the brightest day. From despair over sin to full forgiveness, or what the psalmist used, plentiful redemption. And so if you take notes this morning, we're going to note four steps to the pathway of assurance. Four steps to the pathway of assurance. Step number one, genuine brokenness over your sin. The first step to genuine abiding and lasting assurance is through brokenness over your sin. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Then, step 2, in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist leads us in honest confession of your sin. Honest confession of your sin. Number three, step number three, verses five through six, we see the psalmist trusting in God's promises. Trusting in God's promises. And then the third, or the fourth rather, the fourth step, resting in God's forgiveness. Genuine brokenness, humble confession, trusting in God's promise to save, and resting in His forgiveness. In verses 7 and 8. Well, let's consider these this morning. Number one, genuine brokenness. The psalm begins with brokenness. Look with me again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The psalmist finds himself in a pit, buried far beneath the surface of the earth. He literally feels as if he is so far from God, so dark, full of despair, full of fear. God is far from him. I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice, O Lord. Be attentive to my pleas for mercy. Notice there are four verbs that all are about the Lord hearing him. His sin has separated him from God. 
Once he enjoyed a relationship with God, now he is far from God. It's a place of utter helplessness. A pit is a place where no one can get out. Well, you consider Joseph being thrown into a pit by his brothers. He couldn't get out of the pit. It was too deep. He couldn't climb his way out. He had to be rescued from the pit. Someone had to rescue him out of it. Brothers and sisters, in order to be saved, we have to come to a place where we can't save ourselves. An overwhelming sense of our own brokenness over our sin. This is what the psalmist begins with. I cry to you, O Lord. Be attentive to my pleas for mercy. He desires for the Lord to have mercy upon him because he knows he has done wrong. He knows he has sinned. He got himself into this predicament. He found himself in this helpless situation. Nobody put him there. He put himself there. A number of weeks ago when we considered Psalm 51, we considered that a part of confession, a part of salvation is owning our sin. Not playing the blame game, right? Where we blame others, our situations, our upbringing, No, it's owning our own willful rebellion against God. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that sin is not making a few missteps in life. That our lives prior to salvation was full-on rebellion against God. We wanted nothing to do with God, and we were hell-bent on making sure we lived life our way rather than God's way. This is what the Bible calls sin. You, friend, rebel against God every day in choosing to make your decisions contrary to His revealed will. The psalmist understands here as he cries out to the Lord that only He can save him from his sins. You yourself might here this morning find yourself in the depth of despair over your sin. Sin is a dark place. We, being caught in unrepentant sin is a, is a dark place. It's a difficult place. It is a place of despair, a place of suffering and sorrow. This is why the bottle cannot satisfy and the needle cannot give you a big enough high. This is why you can't have enough money to satisfy or enough inappropriate relationships. See, this world isn't created. The things of this world, the tangible things around us, are not meant to satisfy that which only God can. This is why we always need more. It's never enough. Our rebellion grows and grows. And we dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into this particular hole. But the first step to lasting and abiding assurance is for you to stop digging and to recognize that you put yourself in this place. To own it and to be broken by it. Friend, you'll never be saved if you are not broken by your own sin. That you have offended God, but that this very God, as we'll see in a moment, 
is the one who reaches down in the midst of our wickedness, in the midst of our rebellion against Him and says, come, I will save you. I will forgive you. Brothers and sisters, the first step towards assurance this morning is genuine brokenness over sin. But we can't remain there. We, we can't throw ourselves a pity party. Oh, look, life didn't turn out like I thought. I, I know I made a, a lot of mistakes in life. And, and, and No, no, no. You see, step number two is honest confession of your sin. Look there in verses three and four. Oh, this is so wonderful. We use this often in our assurance of pardon, in our service. If you... O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? Now the psalmist here imagines God with a, uh, a pad of paper and, and marking down every sin. Just imagine this for a moment. God following you around throughout the day. Oh, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. Oh, I need another piece of paper. Let me keep going. Down the road we go. Right? This is what the psalmist imagines. Oh Lord, if you, were, if, you, if you had a pad of paper and you were marking down all of my iniquities in just a single hour of my life, oh Lord, who could, who could stand? Who could stand? Notice here the juxtaposition between verses 3 and 4. It's a conjunction, but... The psalmist imagines a God who has a list that he, he keeps, like a taskmaster. But that isn't God. But that isn't God. That's not how God operates, he says. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see the, the juxtaposition, the parallel here? On one side, he imagines this taskmaster who has all these rules that he's breaking. This is the God he's imagining. Oh Lord, if this was you, who could stand before you? You are a holy God, a righteous God. Who could ever be holy like you are holy? And then the psalmist says, but that's not you. That's not you. You're a forgiving God. You're a gracious God. You're a God who merits not fear and trembling because we've made this deity mad, but rather awe and worship because you are a God who is worthy of worship and praise. That's what he means by that word fear. The psalmist here is confessing his sin to God. He's bringing it into the light. He's not afraid of it because he knows that God forgives sin. You see, this is what's so radically different about Christianity than every world religion out there. See, all other world religions seek to deal with immorality, you know, sin, wickedness, whatever you want to describe it, moral wrongs, by, by heaping up enough moral rights. Like if, okay, I did a lot of bad things, now i got to do a lot of good things to kind of outweigh all the bad things I did. And by the way, as we think about all the bad things we did, we sort of try to not make them so bad anymore. We, we change the, the rules in order to fit in our boxes. But that's not Christianity. See, Christianity is being honest about sin, like calling sin, sin, like that's sin. 
That's wickedness. I'm a sinner. I am evil. I am wicked. I love to do evil things all day. Um, if I had a choice, I would do evil over good because I am sinful. This is no other than the doctrine of depravity that we often consider together. Brothers and sisters, we cannot experience true assurance of salvation until we first are broken and second, honest about sin. You know, if we're, we're trying to like lower the bar so that we can get over it, no, 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 we want to raise the bar so only Jesus can get over it. That's what the gospel is. You understand that the, the more you and I redefine sin and diminish sin, that we diminish the cross? I mean, why did Jesus come and die if it's just you made a couple you know, poor choices in life? No, Jesus Christ came and died because we are sinful. As the psalmist cries out in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Or consider Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What a wonderful truth. Friend, if you'll give up your sin, whatever that may be, you know it. The Holy Spirit's convicting you, no doubt of it right now. Whatever that is, forsake it. If you will bring it into the light and be honest with yourself, God, and the people around you, that you do have sin in your life, friend, that's the first step to assurance. Or consider 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God, by bringing our sin into the light, He deals with it. I mean, imagine how terrible it would be if you know, we just sort of brushed sin away and then it came crawling back out out of the rug. You're just going to sweep it under the rug. Oh, we're not going to talk about it. You know, I'm not going to talk about what I've done. No, friend, that's not how the Bible deals with sin. The Bible deals with sin by you walking in the light, by being honest with yourself and those around you. You will not experience assurance until you're first broken and then honest in your confession of sin. Cry out that you may be forgiven. Step number three. Step number three. Trust God's promises. Now the psalmist here is shifting. This is sort of the second half. If we were to organize this, these eight verses, uh, this is the dividing point between the first and the second half. Notice the shift here in the language. From you, 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 there, in verses 1 through 4, to I, I, I. What, what's the psalmist doing here? The psalmist is saying what he will do to trust the Lord. He's shifting in his posture to point to what God is about to do in and through him. And particularly, to summarize verses 5 and 6, it is to trust God's promises. Notice what he says. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. Those three words, wait, waits, and hope, are all related in the Hebrew language. In other words, it's a, he's continuing to say the same word over and over again to emphasize his posture. Then in verse 6, he uses it again. 
and then illustrates exactly what he means by waiting, unless someone's confused about his particular posture. So he's waiting, his soul's waiting, I hope I'm waiting, and my soul waits again, and well, I wait like the watchman for the morning. Now, this is a strange thing for us, no doubt. Uh, We don't have watchmen that are waiting on the wall. What's the idea here? The idea is that the morning is coming, that, that there is a defined end to it. Let me illustrate it this way. If you've ever worked shift work at night, and you've worked you know, overnight, you know that at 6 a.m. your shift ends, right? There's a defined point, and when this long night is going to come to an end, one, at one point that sun is going to come up. It's a guarantee. It's a promise, Right? You're not, man, I hope it gets to 6 o'clock. I don't know if 6 o'clock's going to come yet. I'm not quite sure. It might, it might not. The sun might come up today. It might not come. No, not at all. There is an expectation in your urgency. There is a trust. But notice here what he's trusting in. You're not trusting for some set time, 6 a.m. What is he trusting? Notice there, verse 5, I wait for the Lord... My soul waits. Well, what are you waiting for? And in His Word, I have hope. By using this phrase, in His Word, the psalmist is referring to the promises of God given through the covenant. That He will not abandon His heritage. That He will not forsake His people. That though this psalmist has drifted far from God, God is grabbing him and drawing him back. Though his path is veered into sin, God is going to push him back onto the straight and narrow. I wait. I wait for the Lord and His promises. The promise to save. The hope found in the promises of God. That He will never leave us nor forsake us. That God will rescue us and save His people. As John Owen once wrote, the Lord Jehovah is the only hope for a distressed soul. The Lord, he says, I wait for you. Now, if you thought that God was this vengeful, wrathful God that was going to destroy you because you rebelled against Him, you wouldn't wait for Him. You'd be like, I'm going away. I'm getting as far from Him as I can. But because he knows that the Lord is long-suffering, that the Lord is a forgiving God, that if he was genuinely broken over sin and honest in his confession, that God would welcome him home, not condemn him to die. Though he rightly deserves condemnation, he knows God's character. For in his character is contained these promises. The promises of Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the one who is steadfast in His love. You see, brothers and sisters, our posture as Christians is that of trust, a patient trust, trusting that one day God will save, not because of anything we've done, but because of His work in Christ. This leads us to the last step. As the psalmist moves from despair to confession to trust, he arrives at rest, at an assurance of a restored relationship with the Lord. He's gone from a a very bad, terrible, no good day to the best day of his life 
Knowing that God in His goodness and grace saves sinners. Oh, it's, the, it's sinners that God saves, not saints. Look there at verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. He has just had an experience where he now invites others into it. He knows that his sin is atoned for. We'll think about that in just a minute. Because he knows his sin is atoned for, that it's forgiven, he wants as many people to be recipients of this forgiveness as possible. And so he invites Israel, the, the whole congregation in, and he says, come and rest with me in God's forgiveness. Well, how does one have hope? Is it inward? Is it from outside? Where, where does this hope come from? Well, look at verse 7. Look with me. For, this is the support, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The psalmist began with despair and concludes with confident assurance. God will redeem Israel. Why? Because they're redeemable? Because they merited it? Because there's something wonderful about this, this, these people? No, no friends, read your, read your Bible. These are, this is a whole sordid lot. They rebel against God at every turn. Uh, from the very moment of the whole inception of the, of the whole clan there with Abram, or the Chaldeans, that, that fellow, he was a real mess. He's trying to pimp his wife out to, to other men. Uh, strange fella. W what are you doing? And then he has some kids, which we don't have time to talk about. And then, then one of them kids has a whole bunch, of, a whole lot of kids. And, uh, and they're a whole mess. And then they grow and God blesses them, but they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God miraculously comes, defeats the gods of Egypt through a series of plagues, kind of puts his foot down and says, I am the creator. I am the one for whom you should worship. And he delivers them. Then he sets them up this really nice place to live, flowing with milk and honey, which means essentially they don't have to work for a living. God's going to provide everything for them. It's going to be a prosperous land. And you know what these people do? For 40 years they whine and complain about how God doesn't have the best life for them and how things haven't really worked out for them. And how actually if we could just go back to slavery in Egypt, we think life might be better. And then they get this brilliant idea at one point to have a king. But they don't want God to be king. They want their own king, like the kings of the world. They wanted to be like the world, not like God wanted them to be. And so they got this king, and he was a real fool. And then they got another king, and well, he had some issues with women. And, uh, and then his son was even worse. He had 300 wives at one point, and on down the road. But God was steadfast. In his love for his people? Because he saves not according to their merit. Not because they have their life figured out. Not because they're successful. Because of his love. 
That word steadfast love is a very special word. It's the chesed love of God. That covenant keeping love. That God cut a covenant with His people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay. I will not abandon my heritage. I will not let you go. No matter how far you wander from me, I will always bring you home. Why? Notice that second half of verse 7. With Him is plentiful redemption. There's a wonderful phrase that our English translation has tried to kind of tease out here. It's like God forgives, He, he redeems, and He has a bunch of redemption left over. When God does something, He goes above and beyond. He has a plentiful redemption. Friend, that's meant to comfort you this morning. But what about my sin? No, you don't understand what I did. You don't understand what I'm doing. You, you know, I, it's a bridge too far. You, you don't understand. My life is so messed up. I, we can't even talk about it. It's so heinous. No, friend, there's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. Repeatedly, the psalmist turns his attention not to anything that he has done, but upon God's character to save. The Bible tells us that redemption did come to Israel through the new Israel. His name is Jesus. And where Israel rebelled against God at every turn, the new Israel obeyed God at every turn. Jesus submitted to His Father's will. He lived the life that we should have. And He died the death we deserve. What that means is that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He paid the penalty that our sin rightly deserves. God, in forgiving sinners, doesn't merely just wipe away sin and and say it's not a big deal, but He deals with our sin through the death of His own Son. God is steadfast in His love towards sinners, and that is displayed through the cross of Christ. He is relentless in His pursuit of His sheep who have gone astray. God is relentless. And the assurance of salvation, the rest that we have in God, is in His covenant purposes. That those whom He has predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son will be conformed to the image of His Son. It's determinative. This is a settled fact. That God has elected a people for His own possession. And He assures them that they will make it home. You say, where is this in my Bible? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. Or Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. What are you sure about, Paul? That He, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Throughout your Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, affirms this overarching truth that those whom God saves, God keeps to the end. 
Dr. Tom Schreiner, professor of New Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes, the case that that we understand in the Bible is that we enjoy peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ so that our righteousness before God is not based on what we do. When we come to this truth, he writes, we are filled with assurance and comfort since justification is fundamentally God's work and not ours. You see, if salvation was by work, there's no assurance. But if salvation is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, then there is assurance. He goes on, we don't rest in ourselves and what we've done, but in God's promise. And those who rely on Christ crucified and risen stand in the right before Him. When the devil comes and frightens us with our sins and failings, or when we tremble in fear as we think of the evil that we have, per- that we have perpetrated, we look to Christ and lean upon Him for our righteousness. We can say to the devil and to our own conscience that you are absolutely right. I deserve to be condemned, for I am a sinner in thought, in word, and deed. But there is no condemnation since I am united to Christ by faith. No one can condemn me on the last day since God is the one who justifies. Yes, Jesus died and was raised on my behalf. He sits at the Father's hand. Thus my assurance is not in myself, but in the finished work of Christ. Brother, sister, what's your assurance in? Is it something you're doing or have done? Is it your long history of church attendance or Bible study attendance or Bible reading or prayers or activity, things you've done, money you've given? What's your assurance? Is it the finished work of Christ or is it something that you've done? The pathway from despair ends in full assurance of salvation, a rest in God's eternal forgiveness through Christ Jesus our Lord. John Bunyan in 1678 was imprisoned, locked away, as Alistair Begg says, because he didn't go to church. That's true. Because he wouldn't go to church, that is the official church. The official church locked up Bunyan. He was a nonconformist. He wouldn't use the Book of Common Prayer in worship. He would only use the Word. And because of his convictions, they locked him up and while he was in prison, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which we've returned, referred to often, commend its reading to you. It's a story of a man named Christian who comes to faith in Christ and enters on a journey. It's meant to be a parable of sorts about the Christian life. And along his journey, Christian meets a number of different characters that you and I meet in our own lives. At one particular point on his journey to the celestial city, Christian and his friend Hopeful are locked away in Doubting Castle, in a particular place where they find themselves at the end of their line, at the end of their rope, if you will. After a number of long nights through torment and prayer, and through the counsel of his friend Hopeful, who also was there with him, he finds and pulls out in his pocket a key. And he's like, ha! This silly thing's been in my pocket the whole time. It was a key called promise. And he realized that this particular key could be pulled out and it could unlock any door in Doubting Castle. And so he and, uh, he and Hopeful got up, unlocked the door, and fled. They were set free. Well, I tell you that because a hundred years later, this young fellow by the name of Charles Wesley 
was writing a hymn and reflecting on this particular scene. He writes this in his hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. God rescues His people from the pit of despair and delivers them to a place of full assurance. Don't trust the words only of these brothers that have come before us. Trust the words in your Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for us. Friend, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the, late, all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, no. See, you see, friend, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us find full assurance of pardon not based upon our own cries and confessions, but solely on the finished work of Christ. We are a forgiven people based solely on God's mercy through the work of Christ. Let us learn this pathway to assurance and rest eternally in God's hands. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You might sustain us this week. Sustain us by Your Word. It is our only hope in the midst of our sin. The promise to save through Christ our Lord. Save your people. Save for your glory and for our good in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friend, as we conclude our time this morning, it is fitting to be able to sing the psalm to which we just thought about. And that's what we're going to do now with this hymn, I Will Wait for You. This is Psalm 130. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>